0: You're listening to Ghost Radio, Station Zero Point Five. It's the Devil in the Dive, and up next is another rad episode of Bad Band, Great Song.
1: Right again, and I'm curious. I'm curious after. After this week, if you've if you've done the research and, and know what an octave is yet, and how many <laughs> notes are in it,
2: you're, you're you're asking me if I know? I know. Do you know? Do you know? Do you, Jeremy Cohen, know what an octave is? I know what an octave is. Do you know what an octave is?
1: I do. It's it's twelve notes. It's twelve notes.
2: Well, it's but eight eight it's eight whole notes.
1: Eight whole notes and four half steps. We're talking about Eastern music here. This is our, this is the scale that we work off of. It's twelve notes. Just because they have the same what? letter and something after it doesn't make it a uh, it makes it a new note. That's what it does make it a new note. For,
2: so we're in the West, by the way, Jeremy. I don't know if you have your direction straight, but uh It
1: depends where you're standing. <laughs>
2: <laughs> okay. Okay. All right. All right. All right, okay. All right, well, uh, <laughs> hello, everybody, and welcome to the podcast that so will piss you off. We know what an octave is, do you? This is Bad Band Great Song. I am your host, Andrew Patrick Finnelli, and with me, as always, is your other host of the show, who definitely, he knows what an octave is, Jeremy Cohen. Jerry! How you doing? How you been? Hey! And the band we're focusing our critique on today is Soul Asylum, and their song, Runaway Train.
0: Runaway Train
1: Let's have a toast for the jerk offs that never take work off. That song, we're doing that one?
2: <laughs> yeah, yeah, that song. That's exactly the one we're doing. Runaway. <laughs> Runaway train is the third single from the band's commercial breakthrough and career peak, Grave Dancers Union, and it is the band's biggest single. Soul Asylum is a band with roots firmly planted in punk, but with the DNA of folk and country. They were critical darlings following in the never-got-famous footsteps of other Twin Cities luminaries, but eventually, for a mainstream audience anyway, they would eclipse all other Twin Cities punk bands. Soul Asylum absolutely has (laughs) their fans and their stands. So I, I, yeah, people are going to be a little mad when, when they hear us say Soul Asylum is a bad band. But as always, while we look at that, folks, we're not here to prove to the diehards that Soul Asylum is bad. No, 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 no. We're here to challenge the skeptics to recognize the greatness of their song Runaway Train.
1: Well, um, I got to admit, I'm extra excited for this one because after all the researching for this band and and listening through their discography and listening to this song specifically and watching the music video and this, that, and the other, I got to admit that this song has not grown on me, like, at
2: all. And you know what? I believe you. (laughs) I don't don't think you're lying. (laughs) Nope. (laughs) So, on that note, folks, we are going to examine Soul Asylum and the song Runaway Train in detail to articulate how and why to make the case that though Soul Asylum became a bad band, Runaway Train is a great song. But first, let's dive into the band's story. That's right, folks. We are back in Minneapolis, Minnesota, one half of the Twin Cities with St. Paul, Minnesota. It's the home, not if you've heard this before, folks, but it's the home of legendary and unbelievably famous artists, Prince, Lizzo, the Andrews sisters, and you know what? Semi-fucking-Sonic.
1: Aha, episode two, and we already got reoccurring themes, folks. Take notes.
2: Yep, that is, that's, that's craft right there. It is, of course, the home of the raucous and revolutionary scene that gave us babes in Toyland, Husker Do, the replacements, uh, and did I mention Semisonic? And if you're like, nah, well, you need to go back and listen to the last episode, buddy. But most importantly for this episode, that scene gave us Soul Asylum.
1: Which has got to be in the top three most emotional bad names of all time.
2: Yeah, and as we're going to get into, I think, over the course of this show, Jeremy, you just absolutely love emotional music, don't you? It's your favorite thing in the whole world, isn't it?
1: Depends where I'm standing.
2: (laughs) 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 Soul Asylum's story starts in 1981 as a trashy, trebly, yet intriguingly tuneful punk band. They were truly a typical Minneapolis hardcore band. And that is that is not a slight, that is a clinical description. There's a very melodic singer-songwriter slant to the type of hardcore band that came out of the Twin Cities scene. They don't sound, well, anything like N- NYC hardcore, DC, Chicago, Cali, you, you name it. They all have their own styles. We know this, but the Minneapolis scene doesn't really get talked about as a hardcore scene too often perhaps due to its tunefulness.
1: That that must be it. It does come off a little bit soft in comparison to what was happening in hardcore in the rest of the country during that time.
2: Ah, but don't get it twisted, folks. Despite what Jerry just brought up, which is true, which is true, don't get it twisted, it was a hardcore scene. Just, again, one populated by bands that also had a thing for traditional rock, concept albums, folk, (laughs) and country music. And in 1981, Soul Asylum began life deep down in their hardcore roots, at the time, performing and recording as a band called Loud Fast Rules. And that name is potentially a reference to the song Loud Fast Rules by NYC punk band The Stimulators, which was released just the year prior in 1980. Totally possible. I don't know. Henry Rollins. Actually, a little side note. Henry Rollins was a huge Stimulators fan, even buying, there's there's stories of him even buying the Loud Fast Rules 7-inch at CBGB's in 1980. Wow. How about that? Yeah. (laughs) Little uh, historical facts there. And about historical facts, Loud Fast Rules, soon to be Soul Asylum, came together after guitarist Dan Murphy took note of his roommate... Carl Mueller, who had a reputation for being Mr. Punk Rock, as Murphy puts it to Rolling Stone. Murphy says Mueller <laughs> wasn't very musical, but his rockabilly hairdo and pierced ears made Murphy say to himself, that's a bassist.
1: Sometimes that, that's all it takes, you know?
2: I, it really is. That's pretty much how my band came together in high school. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know? I was <laughs> anyway, going to say that, but they, I
1: figured we would go there, but yeah.
2: I'd <laughs> say, hey, I looked at a kid named Nick, and I was like, you know what? I, do you know how to play bass, Nick? And he was like, no. And I was like, well, Perfect. you're gonna. You're gonna. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> and so guitarist Dan Murphy and bassist Carl Mueller then enlisted drummer and trumpet player, Dave Perner, who had been playing drums for the local punk rock band The Shits. That's Shits spelled S-H-I-T-Z because punk rock, right? They played their first show within two weeks of forming.
1: Fuck yeah, that's a good that's a good unemotional band name.
2: That's <laughs> Oh, we're really revealing our taste here as this show goes. Uh, anyway, in 1982, Loudfast Rules had two songs featured on a Reflex Records cassette compilation called Barefoot and Pregnant.
1: That sounds exactly like me right now. <laughs>
2: Uh, and quite importantly, Reflex Records was a local independent label run by Husker Du, specifically Bob Mould, and producer and Minneapolis punk rock stalwart Terry Katzman. He's a <laughs> What are you? Is there a specific song you're referencing with that? No. I thought it was like Taxman from the Beatles, but I don't know anymore. No, it, was, it was
1: supposed to be He's a Scatman.
2: Oh, I see. I see. Oh, there you go. A little. All right. Cool. A little. A little scatting or uh, two p.m. in the afternoon. I love it. Yes. Loud fast rules boop. was <laughs> loud fast rules. Loud fast rules was for some reason billed as proud crass fools for the next Reflex Records compilation. Kitten, a live recording from the venue. <laughs> <laughs> fucking name, Goofy's upper deck. Punk rock. <laughs> punk rock stuff all around. Is it a phonetic play on the their original name, Loud Fast Rules? Is it a vague reference to the legendary English anarcho art punk band Crass? Both? I'll choose both. I don't know. We'll never know, but I'll choose both.
1: Is this this has gotta be the first instant of the of the punk rock genre we all effectually known as clever punk?
2: I'm honestly shocked <laughs> that that's not already. With, like, you know, happy hardcore and things like that. I don't know how clever punk is not already a genre. Yeah. You made that up, right?
1: Yeah, yeah, I made that up. But, I mean, this is is it. These guys are
2: fucking clever. (laughs)
1: real clever i
2: guess so i think that cleverness is going to start to dissipate as time goes on but we'll see we'll see by 1983 perner was moved from drums and lead vocals to rhythm guitar and lead vocals he was replaced by a fellow named pat morley on the kit and with this soul asylum was born but about this personnel change. A June 29, 1995, Rolling Stone piece by Neil Strauss fleshes this out a little bit, saying, "Quote: They switched Perner to guitar and vocals because he didn't cut the mustard as a drummer. An interesting and strangely prophetic statement, as drummers would go on to be a hmm sensitive issue for the band. Well, we'll come back to that <laughs> a lot."
1: A classic excuse. You could always blame it on the drummer.
2: Yeah, because they're so plentiful and easy to replace, right? Exactly. (laughs) Ridiculous, yeah. (laughs) By the way, if anybody plays drums out, no, I'm kidding, I got a drummer, it's all right, fine. In 1984, Minneapolis-based independent label Twin Tone Records signed Soul Asylum and Bob Mould produced the group's debut, a nine-song EP called Say What You Will, Everything Can Happen.
1: Wow, that's deep. Yeah,
2: philosophical punk, you Clever and philosophical. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that EP, Say What You Will, Everything Can Happen, sold out. Not one copy would remain in stores. This 1984 debut EP was then later reissued in 1988 on CD. It was expanded into a full-length album that included session outtakes and extra songs that were originally only available on 1986's Cassette-only compilation release, Time's Incinerator. The EP was retitled, Say What You Will, Clarence, Carl Sold the Truck. Uh, A fun title, but in my opinion, a little close to a Sorry Ma Forgot to Take Out the Trash, If You Ask Me, that (laughs) replacement's debut classic.
1: Yeah, there's clearly some influence here.
2: Yeah, I think so, right? But with references aside and retconning in full force, the 1988 full-length version of the 1984 EP is now regarded as the band's full-length debut album, and it is regularly cited as having been released in 1984. <laughs> How about that? Reality is what you make of it, folks. Isn't that funny?
1: Yeah, I mean, it's real funny, because usually only the winners get to write history.
2: Wow!
1: Wow!
2: Damn! Spicy takes already at the start. I'm am I am here for this, as the kids say. Now, now, this is where this is where things get interesting. <laughs> this is where things get interesting. Remember Mould's Reflex Records? Well. That indie label was created quite specifically because Husker Du had been previously rejected by Twin Tone Records. Yes, Twin Tone, the label that signed The Replacements, Soul Asylum, Babes in Toyland and many others, rejected Husker Du. How about that? This fact is detailed in Trouble Boys <laughs> Trouble Boys, The True Story of the Replacements, a book by Bob Ber- Bob Murr. It is also briefly recounted in a September 5th, 2017 Rolling Stone article by Corey Groh titled Inside Husker Du's Early Years Box Set Treasure Trove.
1: Oh, man, I got I got to look that up. I'm so curious how that convo went down.
2: Yeah, right. <laughs> There's a lot of convos that I'm very curious how they went down between all these bands. Totally weird stuff in the Minneapolis scene. One of my yeah. one of
1: my favorite things always to do is like listen to a, a musical choice that you know a that <laughs> just some strange part in a song and just thinking about like oh yeah these dudes were in the studio and we're like this is it like this is what mm-hmm. we're going with. <laughs> and I feel like it's a similar thing of being like oh no 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 this ain't right for our label.
2: What an interesting statement to make, Jeremy. Speaking of prescient, sta- prescient, prescient, prescient statements, which will uh, come up a lot in this episode, I think you just hit on a big question I have, which pertains to a kick drum issue with the song Runaway Train. Right. We'll get, we'll get there when we get there. And before we get there, back to the past. By 1985, Reflex Records shut down but not without leaving behind a legacy of important independent music. In addition to revered compilations, Reflex also put out several noteworthy single band albums. Specifically, one of my favorites, Articles of Faith's Give Thanks LP and The Minutemen's Tour Spiel covers EP. And Twin Tone is, of course, a legendary label, sitting alongside SST, Discord, Touch and Go, and Epitaph as a framework of indie labels that created, truly created, the American independent underground as we have since come to know it. These labels, their bands, they all supported each other in ways not seen before, and uh, I may be wrong, but I feel in ways that we haven't really seen since especially since so many independent labels have been gobbled up by the big boys. This was the golden age of American independent music. It was predicated on high-level coordination and cross-promotion. <laughs> this era, these labels and these bands would become, in ways, the zeitgeist, once Nirvana, brought the underground above.
1: <laughs> okay, 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 okay. This is Note this for our extended off-air conversation about Nirvana for for later. And uh keep an eye out for the episode for that. Coming up soon,
2: folks. <laughs> Jeremy, I am going to oh, 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 I'm not going to make any threats on air. I'm not making any threats on literal record. I'm going to I'm going to cool down and I'm going to relax and we're uh We're not going to come back to this, except that we will. In 1985, we would see Mold take Soul Asylum on the road, as Husker Du toward supporting their album, Flip Your Wig. This was the start of what has since become known as Soul Asylum's relentless and seemingly unending touring. Fansite, and it's a wonderful fansite indeed, fansite... Enter the Soul Asylum lovingly details every show the band ever played, including cancelled shows.
1: Man, I don't ever want to be seen entering the Soul (laughs) Asylum.
2: And I should note, since forming in... (laughs) Oh, Jerry. And since forming in 1981, as loud fast rules, Soul Asylum always maintained a packed show schedule, but 1985 was definitely the year that changed them. They went from playing on average 17, and that's the actual average. I did did do the maths. I averaged it out. On average, 17 shows... I know, impressive, right? They went from playing on average 17 shows a year to playing 112 shows in 1986. Suck on that, Semisonic. Suck on that! (laughs) 50-show career height. Fuck, Fuck you, Semisonic! Anyway... Speaking of change, Soul Asylum replaced drummer Pat Morley with fan-favorite Grant Young in between their debut and second album. Drummers! <laughs> am I right? They just have a habit of exploding, don't they? Literal, spontaneous, human combustion. That's a Spinal Tap reference, folks. It's a Spinal Tap <laughs> reference.
1: Yeah, or, uh, or a bizarre gardening accident, perhaps. <laughs> or, or they just moved to the bay. Or they have better beds to be in. So many
2: possibilities. There is... So many. <laughs> there is no official statement on Morley's departure. Other than an interview Dave Perner gave, pleasekillme.com, an interview published July 25th, 2020. Prior to that, though, there was no mention of, of Morley's departure. <laughs> but in this interview, Perner states that Morley quit. And that is All we have to go off of. Bye. Now, I should note, however, and and this is not me editorializing, many diehard fans, the sort of folks you find in forums, these diehard fans really feel that the lineup with Grant Young on drums is peak classic and definitive Soul Asylum this classic Soul Asylum lineup would record seven releases together, including five full-lengths, an EP, and a cassette-only release. This body of work supports the notion that this is the classic and definitive version of Soul Asylum. In addition to that, just plainly speaking, the releases with Young on the kit are all the most beloved and revered Soul Asylum records. But of course, there is another camp of fans I need to acknowledge. The sort of fans who exist in fandoms. Uh, no offense to... Well, no, no, I, yeah, actually, full, full offense to you if you're in a fandom. I, 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 that's the road I'm going down and I can't pretend I'm not. Anyway, so <laughs> the sort of fans who exist in fandoms. These folks, the folks who are just happy to be here and part of the ride... Great folks, good folks to have as fans. They're the folks who are down for whatever the Dave Perner band does next. You know the the types of folks who say things like "Okay, Human" is just as good, if not better, than Pinkerton. No, I, I know, I know. They're shocking. <laughs> They're out there. They're real. They're out there. Believe me. Oh my God! Have you have you listened to "Okay, Human"? I I have. I'm not overwhelmingly happy about the time spent listening to it, but I have I have listened to it. It's it's Beautiful. Um,
1: the yeah. album art is amazing. I'm like so in love with the album art, and I'm also super pumped. The La Brea Tar Pits now have a song. I don't know <laughs> if they ever did before, but I'm super happy about that. And I really didn't hate the whole thing as much as I thought they would. But there, there's no way there's anyone out there that thinks it's better than Pinkerton, man.
2: So I literally, I it's a month old. It's a month old Reddit post. It does thankfully have zero. Updutes, but but the title of the post is okay, human is the only S tier Weezer album. I'm not gonna say who posted this, I'm not trying to dox this person, I don't know. But uh, even though people thankfully pushed back on this foot fella, he's not they're not the only one who've said some similar things and. Oh, boy. Shocking. Yeah. By the time this show is like... (laughs) Before the first season is done, there's going to be multiple subreddits that just fucking hate us. But I I guess that's what we're here for, right? I guess so. Controversy creates cash.
1: So, rhythm guitar... Yeah, well, I mean, the other angle, too. The way that I look at it is, like, you know, criticism is so bland right now, so... You it know, is. we're trying to add some edge and have some opinions, you know? We are.
2: Thank you. Very well said. And again, folks at home, lest you get it twisted, we're not telling you what to listen to and what not to listen to. We're not telling you what to enjoy and not to enjoy. We're just having a critical conversation, even even if it does border on incendiary and provocative at times. I mean, you it's know. It's true. Yeah. It, it is true. I don't know if I'm right, but it is true. <laughs> So, anyway, moving on Rhythm guitarist, lead vocalist Dave Perner Lead guitarist Dan Murphy Bassist Carl Mueller And drummer Grant Young Set forth as Soul Asylum To record their second album Made to be Broken in 1986 And once again with Bobbert Mould producing them.
1: <laughs> okay, Bob.
2: <laughs> and in addition to Made to be Broken, Soul Asylum also released Time's Incinerator, cassette only, and the official follow-up to Made to be Broken while you were out. And they did that all within 1986.
1: Damn, grinding it out. Well, that's a lot for a year, and I think probably
2: their best work. <laughs>
1: right? Well, you know, complete album. But we'll get more into that.
2: Yes, we will. And also of note that year, this is really a little spooky. The LA Times published an article titled Soul Asylum on April 7th, 1986. The piece is a rather glowing review of Soul Asylum's late night Friday, April 4th set at Club Lingerie, a former venue on Sunset Boulevard. The second paragraph, a paragraph I wonder if Perner ever read, begins as such, quote, Soul Asylum sounds like some unholy mix of Kiss and Hank Williams thrown under the wheels of a runaway train.
1: Oh my God, Perner totally read that. It sounds like a direct, like the song is a direct response to me. Like, yeah. wouldn't you rather be? W- I mean, would you rather be under the wheels of a of a train or the train? You know, <laughs> runaway or not.
2: He is the train, and yo, I I think Dave Perner did quite a bit of a. I don't know what it's called but you know what vanity check what what the hell it is when like celebrities search their own name as a hashtag on Twitter and Instagram you know what I mean to, like see how people are talking about them
1: Right right yeah, yeah yeah yeah. there's probably a word for it I don't know what it is but he's definitely doing that daily He's got right? he's got Google news notifications for his name for sure
2: Exactly a 100% Uh anyway end of <laughs> And like a runaway train, that's what a strong segue. that. What a strong segue that was. And like a runaway train, the band played with unrelenting regularity throughout 1987. Once again, fan site Enter the Soul Asylum confirms the band Ugh. played 64 shows in 1987. That's 14 more shows than semisonic at their 1998 major label height. Hmm, how about that? How about that? Suck it, Semisonic! 50 shows, my <laughs> Jesus Christ, 50 fucking shows. Oh, and also about that 64 number, that ain't that impressive. In 86, Soul Asylum played 112 shows, as we discussed. And in 88, they played 139 shows. Indeed, they kept a pace that would not show any signs of slowing down until you, you know, 2020. But This also means that 2021 may be the very first time since 1981, 40 years, folks, that Soul Asylum doesn't play before a live audience. We'll see. I don't know. Though, they do allegedly have a May 14th, 2021 show at the Effingham Performance Center in Effingham, Illinois. And again, allegedly a November 27th, 2021 show at the Efnar in Eindhoven, Netherlands. Took some digging to find that. Those uh, those dates are not on the website or enter the Soul Asylum fan site.
1: It also seems like they have an April 3rd date at First Avenue in uh, in Minneapolis. Get the fuck Home, out. Hometown show. Really? Yeah. Well. I mean, what? you know, things change, but...
2: Things change. Let's, and if they don't, let's definitely not go to that show and make sure that that doesn't change.
0: <laughs> but
2: to be clear, though Tox's Soul Asylum hiatuses will happen, folks, and they will happen, they never stopped playing shows in 40 fucking years. But back to the past. In 1987, Twin Tone Records began a three-year distribution, marketing, promotion, and publicity agreement with the larger independent label, a and Records. As the website on a and Records details, quote, the deal centered on a and Records picking up two acts each year from Twin Tone and its affiliates, of which there were many, by the way. We're not going to take time to go into that, but Twin Tone had many affiliates, again, discussing this, this network of, of independent labels working together. By 1988, Soul Asylum was brought on to the A&M roster. Their first first release for A&M was 1988's Lenny K-produced Hangtime, a record that Wikipedia claims is the band's, quote, major label debut. (laughs) This is an error that the LA Times and Rolling Stone would also make. I can chalk this up to perhaps the Understanding of indie and major being a bit different, then, after all, the big three. <laughs> uh oh, here we go again. <laughs> <laughs> the big three, Warner, Universal, and Sony, weren't necessarily the big three in the 80s and very early 90s, anyway. You know, as we know them now, certain mergers had yet to occur. But the website on A&M Records and an NPR piece on A&M Records 100% confirms that A&M Records was an independently owned company up until Polygram bought it in 1990. More on that very soon. But to be clear, to be clear, because I clearly got to stick up my ass about this, the only places you read A&M Records being called a, quote, major are accounts, from the time, written by individuals, specifically journalists and reviewers, writing about Soul Asylum that I've read for this episode. And again, I, 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 listen, I'm, not, I'm not a monster here. I believe it's fair to say that they had fewer research tools back then and also had a different perspective on what made a major label. But in contrast, if you do research on A&M Records in 2021 with the power of the internet you will find that every historical account of A&M identifies it as being an independently owned label. Until, again, it was purchased by Polygram. And again, more on that very soon. But I would be remiss if I didn't acknowledge that now A&M Records is indeed part of the Universal Music Group Family of labels.
1: Real independent until you're not. I'm sure <laughs> and everyone at a and was really happy about the purchase, you know?
2: Yeah. I, I mean, I'm sure at least a few folks were. Anyway, but the NPR series, just to... Because I'm not letting go of this yet. So just to send it home, the NPR series, The Record, says it succinctly with the title for their a and piece. Quote, a and Records, independent... With major appeal. rant over. Diversion done. Wow. Thank you for coming to my TED Talk. <laughs>
1: That's a contradictory statement.
2: Well, no, it's a very it's a smart statement, but I'm not going to take the time to unpack it and explain it to you right here. Go read a book, God damn it, Jeremy. Anyway... Reports indicate... All right, fine. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to explain it. It's an independent label with major appeal. You see what they're saying there? It's an independent label. I get what
1: they're saying.
2: Okay, fine. Do you know what, what an it. octave is, Jeremy? Do you know what an octave is?
1: <laughs> 69 I notes. I have no...
2: <laughs> yeah, it's 69 notes with 420 intervals. Waka, waka, waka. Uh-huh. Uh, let, me know how, uh, let me know how my comedy is doing, folks. Anyway, reports indicate that 1988's Hangtime did well on college radio, but failed to meet expectations regarding sales. Hmm.
1: I, think, I think this is really where the, the band starts turning musically. They just start to seem more operatic and, and just lame at this point.
2: That's interesting. Can I challenge you and check you right now and ask you what you mean by more operatic? I'm really curious what you mean by that. His
1: voice just starts to change. He just starts to sing so differently, I think. I think that his like vocal delivery just becomes a different—there's so much more melody in it.
2: Oh, I see. That is interesting. Yes, they definitely became—well, this is the thing we'll talk about. The middle-of-the-road, straight-line path that Soul Asylum seemed to follow— they just got more and more tuneful and melodic and acoustic and that singer-songwritery uh affectation inside them took hold as time went on for sure more and more so i do agree with you there actually for once we agree yeah, it just seems
1: like this is it seems like the uh, it seems like the real beginning of it to me
2: yeah no i hear that i hear that and i think you can really hear that in a uh, in their in their donkey album <laughs> we'll get there very soon folks <laughs> that sounds weird as fuck to you anyway the band followed up hang time 88 hang time with 1989's clam dip and other delights a release that was <laughs> Actually supposed to come out before Hang Time, leading to some confusion on that wonderful thing called the internet. The title and cover were both parodies of Whipped Cream and Other Delights, the album released by A and M co-founder Herb Alpert. And I, um, I I don't I don't know if there were any expectations for this one at all, to be honest.
1: Yeah, I mean, besides expecting more of the same. <laughs>
2: <laughs> oh man, oh man, and I guess talking about more of the same. I think. Oh man, segues as 1989 turned into 1990. Twin Tone's deal with A and M Records officially ended. On A and M Records states, "quote the Twin Tone deal ended with the sale of A and M to Polygram Records effective January 1st, 1990." However. Soul Asylum's next album, 1990's Steve Jordan produced and the horse they rode in on, was still released by A&M Records on September 4th, 1990.
1: This has got to be my favorite Soul Asylum album. It's got some hilarious variations as well, which I didn't didn't know the origin of all of them, but they just seemed like promo shots. But it just has them standing just like in a room that's like a white seamless with a donkey. That's fucking funny for the album it, name.
2: It's absolutely amazing. It's it's, it's probably... There was, sorry, no, continue. What you you going to yeah, say? Yeah, there, uh,
1: th- there was also a variation with a sawhorse. Fucking yes. clever.
2: <laughs> yes, yes. No, and this- then
1: another one with just a duck in the room with them, which I guess is just like a fuck reference, which I also <laughs> fuck
2: with. <laughs> Baby, I'm not going to pretend to understand that one. I really don't, but this is definitely... For the cover and the music on the album, this is my preferred. This is my personal favorite Soul Asylum album as well. Um, Are we agreeing? Well, I think the full full expression. Right. (laughs) (laughs) Well, anyway, however, expectations were high for this album.
1: Yeah, dude, the art.
2: (laughs) (laughs) But they were not met. Uh uh.
1: Yeah, well. One thing I love to say all the time, and I'm sure you'll hear me repeat this on the pod and IRL, is what I love about album digging is you can judge a record by its cover. Not not in this case, though. The expectation rule was, you know, the exception rule is here. But, all right. but that's that's one of my favorite things about vinyl digging. You, you mostly can.
2: Okay, so I'm starting to think we don't agree on the quality of And the Horse they rode in on. But moving on... Mm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. According to popular telling events, A&M Polygram cut ties with Soul Soli- Sol- Asylum, but according to the Neil Strauss June ninth, 1995, Rolling Stone article, quote, after the poor promotion and poor sales of And the Horse They Rode In On, the band decided to leave the label. But leaving was not an easy task. Soul Asylum had to fork over Two hundred thousand dollars to break their contract, and spent the next four years paying the label an equally outrageous amount in back pay. What a wonderful uh, industry, right, folks? The music industry—it's so oof. lovely.
1: So bad. Uh. <laughs>
2: yeah, don't you all at home just want to be part of the music industry so badly? <laughs> <laughs> I'll, I'll tell you. I'll tell you what, folks uh, and Jerry. Uh, I mean, you know. In my opinion, I think these days we're more Tin Pan Alley than the actual fucking Tin Pan Alley was. That whole pop musician as actual artist and the whole album artist revolution of the 60s that that was all allegedly about. Yeah, that, that failed. That failed. We are back to the Tin Pan Alley, folks. We really are. And we have been.
1: yeah. I mean, I do have a little bit ho- of hope that we may see a shift in that in, in in terms of ownership and power when it comes to the musicians in the next few years. But that's probably just me being overly optimistic. But there, there's some chance.
2: Yeah, there is. But more and more, the biggest stars are... We're back to the biggest stars not writing their own music. And I mean, like, I don't expect, like... I'm trying to think of I don't think Kelly of Kelly Clarkson as a songwriter or whatever but I mean like I'm not going to put people on blast here but you and I both we have a friend we have a friend who writes mm-hmm. songs professionally okay. and his songs have been shopped around to folks like Machine Gun Kelly you know the guy who's allegedly saving punk rock these days Yeah I, you know <laughs> I don't know when somebody is holding a guitar and they're playing guitar-based music. I kind of expect that they write their own music, but that's not the reality we live in anymore. It just isn't, so... Tin Pan Alley, folks, here we are. Anyway, Soul Asylum was now a band without a record deal, and Perner was beginning to suffer from serious hearing problems. Despite still playing shows, the band seemed done. Mueller returned to his day job in a restaurant young, (sighs) <sighs> is unaccounted for, something that will become a trend, sadly. Murphy began an antique collecting business, something that essentially led to the gallery he owns now. And Perner, well, Perner probably panicked, not wanting to return to his job as a fry cook. Not that there's anything wrong with doing that. Just didn't want, didn't, wasn't what he wanted to do. But things would soon turn around. In a moment as momentous as the early concerts that brought Mueller and Murphy together, Murphy tells Strauss in the June 25th, 1995 Rolling Stone piece that he saw Oliver Stone's, quote, terrible movie about the doors, and that sparked something inside of him. Murphy says, quote, Yeah, I remember leaving the theater and just feeling fucking empty. I was like, that's right. I was in a band that had a chance to be something. End quote. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I love that. I love finding inspiration in, in terrible and thinking, damn, I could do better than that. That's that's great.
2: Right? It's kind of amazing. Oh, and I'm, I'm going to edit this out, but I just can't wait to tell you. I'm talking about... <laughs> has written songs that have been shopped to Machine Gun Kelly. Isn't that crazy?
1: That's crazy. I was trying to figure out who it was.
2: <laughs> <laughs> and his band... uh, uh Um... Yeah, dude, like a professional songwriter now. It's crazy. But anyway, back to the show. So around this time, Dan Murphy and Dave Perner began playing acoustic gigs as... Murphy and Perfinkel... How about that? (laughs)
1: Yeah. L-O-fucking-L.
2: Yeah, yeah. That's actually pretty, pretty good, Murphy and Perfinkel. They began working on new material, material that was not only a natural progression from their previous records, but material that was also directly informed by their acoustic shows. And during this time, pop culture changed. A seismic shift occurred. A seemingly unbelievable sea change. September 24th, 1991, a band from Seattle, Washington, released their second album, an album called Nevermind. I'm, of course, (laughs) I'm, of course, talking about Nirvana. Mm?
1: Oh, God. I was really hoping this was going to have to be a Nirvana episode, too, man.
2: Nirvana, despite what Jerry thinks, is one of the most important bands of all time.
1: Okay. Uh, Okay, okay So I know that a lot of people find them to be One of the most important bands of all time Which I guess in turn Makes them to be one of the most important bands of all time Because it's all fucking subjective And fucks you, next sentence, let's go
2: (laughs) They changed not only the mainstream's perception of alternative culture and sounds, but they changed the way Suits saw it, too.
1: Oh, fuck yeah. Can't argue with that. But, you know, this is starting to feed into my whole reason on why Nirvana fucking sucks. It's punk for Suits. It's punks for people that love Radiohead. Palatable, sad boy garbage that makes the Suits and the flannels feel real interesting. I mean... God damn it, I can't believe we're doing this. Next sentence.
2: The funny thing about all of this is I'm I'm certain that I'm the one who's going to get the reputation for being the typical hipster douchebag, snarky snob asshole. I'm not saying that that's all you. I'm just implying that that's all you. I'm just implying. That. Anyway, anyway. And much like The Strokes, a band Jerry does like started a yeah. rabid A&R feeding frenzy in 2001 that saw every sort of hip garage rock throwback band imaginable get signed. Nirvana did that in 1991 for alternative culture at large
1: right well you know for me personally i wasn't really too much a part of the alternative culture in 1991 that when that album was released you know being that i was two years old and not from seattle and like the strokes didn't take all their time in the studio to write music to bitch about their lives you know i mean sure they probably had a better upbringing they had rich parents or whatever but that's not what we're talking about i love the strokes can we please be done talking about nirvana (laughs)
2: <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah, no, we're done, we're done, we're done, right after I get this clear. <laughs> Punk for suits, see, you just literally described the strokes. That is exactly what the strokes are. And you've also shown how ignorant you are regarding Nirvana, their sound, and their significance, which I hate you for, Jerry. Blah, blah, blah. But I also blah, find blah. it incredibly amusing and endearing. I love, no, 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 it's, it's, it's cool. Wait, okay, I'm gonna, you don't like emotional music, Jeremy Cohen. You do not like emotional music. I'm going to call you out on this live on the show right here, right now. In fact, I have proof. Let's go over this. Your favorite bands, LCD Sound System, Daft Punk, Death From Above 1979, and The Strokes. Am I leaving any out? Am I leaving any out? Because I just named some of the least emotionally compelling, engaged, and connected bands.
1: I, I mean, you know, there's definitely other favorites for sure.
2: Okay, okay. Sure, I'm sure none of which are emotionally resonant, by the way. But hey, again, we all have our tastes. I I think it's fun. I like it. I like that you are such a mm, paint by numbers hipster. It's fun. It makes the conversation
0: really.
2: (laughs) 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 It's okay. I'm gonna go back to the script, and I'm gonna leave you some time to think of insults to hurl at me. Okay.
1: Anyway, well, I mean, you know, paint-by-numbers oh. hipster. I, I had to have a podcast, so I'm glad you helped, you helped achieve that. Dude. Now it's a full picture.
2: There, <laughs> there, dude, that's actually quite... I don't know if that was meant to be an insult, but that was actually quite beautiful, and I'm happy to help you there, buddy. Anyway, it was during this time when Columbia Records A&R man Benjamin Benji Gordon signed Soul Asylum to Columbia Records, a record label that was purchased by Sony In 1988 Meaning yes Major (laughs) Yes folks Oh, It really is our favorite game to play isn't it Now finally Soul Asylum was Actually a major label band No longer indie And this is where I'll Maybe ease up a bit Would anybody have called Columbia CBS Records an indie Prior to the Sony purchase No probably not But it technically was Just like A&M it's a, it's a long, strange story, specifically Columbia, CBS Records, and and the Sony purchase. A story outside the scope of this show. Stay
1: tuned for our spinoff show, Bad Label, Great Band. <laughs> it's not a <laughs> where we we'll we'll discuss the history of ba- of a band's relationship with like a predatory, terrible label that helped. <laughs> really, pre- that didn't help at all, and all they did was prevent careers from taking <laughs> off. It's, it's really not a bad idea, actually. I mean, there's endless stories.
2: No, it's actually a pretty damn good idea, man, and I think, uh, I think that uh, you may have just come up with another little uh, avenue for the show to go down eventually. Oh, and speaking of places to go, places to be, we now find ourselves on October 6th, 1992. It is the release of Soul Asylum's breakthrough album, Grave Dancers Union. And it came out around 11 years after the band first began playing shows and recording. I would like to quickly note the iconic album cover is a photograph and piece of art created by Czechoslovakian photographer and painter Jan Saudek. His works are easily identifiable thanks to his hand tinted coloring style, something that adds a dreamy, and surreal quality to his already very evocative artwork.
1: It's it's pretty cool, but the donkey one still takes the cake for me.
2: Yeah, it's 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 some pretty good art, but it's not a donkey, man. It's not it's not four dudes staring at a donkey on a white, a very large white seamless. That's yeah. that's that's <laughs> fucking album art. Not even a joke. The, the first single off <laughs> of, of Grave Dancer's Union, Somebody to Shove, was dropped ahead of the album's release on May fifth, nineteen ninety two. It did okay. The song itself is an awesome song, and it's also a callback to the style of music that made Soul Asylum so beloved by indie fans in the first place. Indie fans. <laughs> it was the first track on the album, and it is what is known in this disgusting business as a, quote, setup up song. A song designed to remind folks why they liked the band in the first place, before they go in another direction. Seems cool, right? Hmm. Until you realize it can be something that some suit demands a band does if the suit doesn't think the record will start in a way that's appropriate for hooking listeners. Paint by numbers, plug and play. It's not art. It's a product, folks. A product indeed. Yeah,
1: I mean, this... This is certainly gonna be a through line in a lot of the episodes we do. We really gotta do b l g b man
2: we really should and that's kind of a sad thing to realize <laughs> that that sh- that yeah, show it is really needed.
1: is <laughs> it's so needed to, for this story like i it's uh, like you gotta understand the label's behaviors to get some of these stories it, It's really interesting. Maybe yeah. we just do one, one episode on it and, and kind of cover the whole thing. But whatever. We got to talk about this another time.
2: We do. And, you know, but I mean, we're going to talk later on in this episode about Dave Perner continually wanting to chase the runaway train, that dragon, so to speak. I, you know, I, Now you make me wonder. I wonder how much of it was all him versus record labels continually saying, Right. That runaway train shit. That's the shit that sells me. You know what I'm saying? Well, anyway, before we get there, the next single, Black Gold, was also released in 1992. This song was the second track on the album, (laughs) seeing a trend here, and it is also a few steps closer to the sound that Soul Asylum would become known for. This song can be summed up as simply what I always wish Neil Young and Crazy Horse actually sounded like after my dad told me that they were, quote, heavy. Hmm. How about that?
1: Hmm, how about that indeed, Fanny? You, you, you really love Soul Asylum.
2: I, I like some Soul Asylum. All right. And I will I will say, I mean, <sighs> Neil Young and Crazy Horse, my dad really primed me wrong for that. He was like, this is heavy stuff. Uh, and then, I, you know, what is that? What is that one song Um Sugar Mountain, that was the first Neil Young and Crazy Horse song I heard. Sugar Mountain, and I was just instantly fucking gutted. I ended up, <laughs> I ended up learning to love that song and all of Crazy Neil Young and Crazy Horse. But goddamn, just shows goes to show you how different people have different definitions of a single fucking word. Because yeah, I would not. I saw Neil Young and Crazy Horse live, and they did a 20-minute cover of Hendrix's cover of Dylan's all along the watchtower, and it was rad. It ripped. That was kind of heavy, but I would not call Neil Young Crazy Horse heavy. Anyway, it's worth noting very quickly that the videos for both Somebody to Shove and Black Gold were directed by a young filmmaker by the name of Zack Snyder. Yes, that Zack Snyder. Hope you all like the cut. I don't know, I haven't watched it. I probably well, won't. <laughs>
1: poor poor Zacky. People are really loving this new cut, though.
2: I, I've seen some people memeing on it. and like, But yeah, I, th- I think people generally like it. Well, anyway, the third track on the album was also the third single. Really, uh, really sticking to a theme here. Runaway Train. And so their biggest song would become an all-too-apt metaphor for the rest of the band's career. Indeed, things did get out of control and go off the rails, but before all that, they became megastars. Superstars. Runaway Train was a massive success. It catapulted the band into superstardom. It was their crowning achievement in various Billboard charts, something we'll cover later. And it pushed Grave Dancers Union into triple platinum sales. It also won the Grammy for Best Rock Song in 1994.
1: Ah, the highly coveted Grammys. <laughs> yes, yes. The virtuous and esteemed members of the Grammys.
2: Yeah, I don't understand how and why the Grammys is still of any value to anybody. This is a conversation you and I have had off off mic i know i know it means that some folks in the industry can charge a higher rate but man it's just like eddie vetter already told us like fucking back in the early 90s this is this is meaningless this is absolutely meaningless this award means nothing but whatever yeah yeah uh, anyway, the video, talking about videos, the video for "Runaway Train was definitely a large part of the song's success. The video was directed by Tony Kay, and there are multiple versions of the video. Multiple versions for international airing, and also multiple edits for the domestic version. I won't go into specifics, because this isn't a show about video, videos, and there are a lot of specifics to go over with this, but the entire theme of the video is Runaway and Missing Children. It has a PSA-style presentation featuring the faces of missing children and ending with a number to call. This, in fact, made the video seem like an actual PSA, something MTV did not like, hence the multiple domestic edits. Director Tony... (laughs) Director Tony K has stated that 26 missing children were found as a result of this video. Some of the missing children, however, uh, they were deceased. That said, the video for Runaway Train did actually have a legitimately positive impact on real lives, something that can't really be said for, I'll say, mm, 99.999999999999% of music videos and songs.
1: Yeah, wow. I mean, imagine if MTV didn't edit the video, there could have been, like, way more kids found. (laughs) Maybe. Those children's bloods are on your hands, MTV.
2: (laughs) Gonna let that stay. Fuck you, MTV. (laughs) (laughs) And though Runaway Train is a great song... The purpose-driven music video undeniably pushed the song to even greater heights. Like Landing Soul Asylum, a spot playing at the first inauguration of United States President Bill Clinton on January 20th, 1993.
1: Well I certainly did not see this coming. Did, did Billy play sax along?
2: Mm, I wish. <laughs>
1: Do you know if he ever released a record? Oh, my God. (laughs) Holy shit.
2: I I, actually looked into it. I actually looked into it trying to see if there is a Bill Clinton album. I'm almost shocked that there isn't in some version of a thing called a Bill Clinton album. But there is apparently a Bill Clinton album meme. I didn't know this. Apparently it is a thing.
1: Yeah, there is the meme.
2: Okay, so you knew about that. I did not know about this. I, I guess this is what you get for staying off of Instagram, which I'm... Going to try to stick to.
1: <laughs> okay. Oh, this show! Oh, gosh. I mean, well, you're, just, so you're just on Reddit instead. Good, great. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Perfect,
2: <Eddie>. Andy. <laughs> I know, I know. I know, because Reddit is so much better than Instagram and Twitter and all that. Oh, <laughs> uh, well, we all pick our poisons, right? Well, about uh, that 100%. video. 100% about that video and playing the inauguration. Those things were not the only purpose-driven things that the band did. They regularly also played pro-choice benefits, which is rad as fuck, as well as also taking part in a Red Hot Chili Peppers organized AIDS benefit album titled No Alternative. See, that's a pun, Dan Wilson. That's a pun, Dan Wilson. That's a fucking pun. Dan Wilson, damn, Fucking Wilson. Gosh, that guy, let me tell you something, man. Oh, uh, a a quick note on director Tony Kaye before I forget this. After working with Soul Asylum, he would go on to direct American History X and spun spun among many other strange films that you may or may not have seen. And I've also heard he's allegedly... uh, a decorated commercial director <laughs>
1: oh man yeah I, he's quite a <laughs> he's quite an outspoken and interesting dude and i, I really, he's the kind of guy that doesn't give a fuck in all the right ways i, I fuck with him
2: yeah, no he definitely definitely doesn't give a fuck and folks remember to go google tony k tv commercial director after this and, and... no no
1: <laughs> no no don't do that
2: and then email him afterwards letting him know how much you love his commercials
1: Uh, No, no, no.
2: (laughs) Yeah, this is real. We're getting real. This is very inside baseball. Nobody's going to have any idea what we're talking about, and I'm going to leave it at that. 1993 would be a year that saw Soul (laughs) Asylum play relentlessly and ride high on the success of their breakthrough hit single. It would also be a year of massive change, something I will definitely be saying more than once. The band added keyboard player Joey Huffman to the mix in the summer of 93, and he would play with the band until joining Matchbox 20 in 1998, something quite curious as Soul Asylum would eventually go from headlining gigs to being sandwiched between Semisonic and Matchbox 20 on shows by 1998.
1: <laughs> Somewhere I'd like to be. <laughs>
2: <laughs> Though he would... Though, though Joey Huffman would come back and play keys for the band once again on their 2006 album, The Silver Lining. Does
1: Does Matchbox 20 have a good song?
2: That's something I'm trying to figure out because they're definitely right, a bad band. <laughs>
1: right. Yeah.
2: This no, they're, I'll, I'll they're, s- they're slated somewhere on our calendar. I think they might be a band with like two or three songs listed. But back to Soul Asylum. (laughs) 1993, as we said, was a year of massive change. That year was the last year that fan-favorite drummer, Grant Young, would be a member of Soul Asylum. Young told Rolling Stone in an August 5th, 1993 piece, quote, Yeah, I had a really hard time making this last record. Uh, I confronted everybody. And they all made me feel that, you know, we're all in this together, and we're all equally important to each other. To me, that's what this group's about. <laughs> oh, Grant. But in that same piece, Dan Murphy follows up that quote by saying, and I quote, oh man, oh gosh, and I quote, everybody thinks there's great camaraderie in bands, but there <laughs> and there is to a certain extent in this band, but when we have time off, it's definitely time off. I think what gets left out about us is obvious. We're four very different people. Hmm. How about that? Lots of uh, of foreshadowing with this band. Well, Grant Young is an almost retconned member of the band. He was famously completely left out of Dan Murphy's list of thanks given to bandmates upon his 2012 departure from Soul Asylum, something we'll touch on later, and the music industry at large. Grant Young is rarely, if ever, acknowledged by Dave Perner post-1993. Grant Young is never referred to as a classic and missed member of the band. He is never even discussed in a sort of, you know, hidden pain and alluded to Chekhovian way, uh, the way that we as feeling humans tend to talk about things that conjure up complex and complicated emotions and memories. No, none of that. But when he is discussed, Grant Young is barely mentioned by name, and referred to as though he is one of the many hired guns who would come and go for Soul Asylum.
1: Well, Perter's definitely the kind of guy that wants to be the absolute center of attention. Uh, I could see why yeah. he wouldn't mention a fan favorite. Absol- you know, absolutely. would be like, "Oh, this fan favorite doesn't exist." So,
2: <laughs> it's kind of it's kind of scary, man. But that's that's definitely something that we're going to touch on right now, (laughs) in detail. In Spin Magazine's monumental, and I mean monumental, July 24th, 2013 piece titled, Wrong Way on a One-Way Track, The Oral History of Soul Asylum's Runaway Train, we get a bit of clarity. In fact, Spin reached out to Young for the piece multiple times. None of those attempts were successful. Suffice to say, Grant Young is not happy, and I get that. The piece, yeah, me too. Right, exactly. I've no ill will towards Young man. The piece, the spin piece, the oral history of runaway, runaway Train. The piece goes on to detail how the producer and Columbia executives put pressure on the band, specifically Dave Perner, to replace Grant Young. Apparently, he wasn't. Um, how should I say this? Cutting the mustard, so to speak. Hmm. So, they called in studio and touring drummer, Sterling Campbell.
1: You know, never trust a guy named Sterling.
2: (laughs) Never, it's too fancy of a name. Campbell gives us the most clarity regarding what the actual (laughs) problems were. Campbell told Spin Magazine, quote, Yeah, yeah, actually the way Michael, the producer, had the drums tuned, well, I could see how it would have been a problem for Grant to play on. Because they were really loose. I think that's what might have caused a lot of the problems.
1: It's but somehow those shittily tuned drums are like what resonated. I mean, did uh, did that make the record?
2: It did. It did. It so so Grant Young didn't actually play on the track "Runaway Train." All of that drumming was Sterling Campbell, and he was credited as uh, credited as a percussionist to save face. But uh, right, he actually did record. Sterling Campbell, rather, did record the drums for Runaway Train. So, I mean, there we have it, really. You know, yes, Perner, Murphy, the producer, uh, and Suits at Columbia will tell you quite matter-of-factly that Grant Young just couldn't cut it and was hampering the band. But the man they had replace him, Sterling Campbell, he tells the truth plainly the drums were tuned wrong and borderline unplayable. In fact, Dan Murphy quotes Sterling Campbell as saying, you've got to be fucking kidding me. You don't want me to play this kick drum. (laughs) But they did. And so he did. And by Perner's own admission in this spin oral history piece, the kick drum in question, it was an old ratty piece that Perner, quote, got from an ex-girlfriend's brother And this kick drum had, quote, a really loose head on it. Now, was this some heavily considered long, gestating rift that resulted in a serious setup to fuck young over? Or was this the result of mistakes? Oversights? A runaway train of groupthink and mob mentality and and vicious witch-hunting? I don't know
1: but like young young played it anyway and a drummer could like so easily ask for a drum key and turn that shit up you know like just tune it but it seems like maybe it was a way for him to say fuck you to the band i like it's such a weird story
2: well uh, uh, again so grant young did play drums on that album but but just again to be clear he did not play drums on the song runaway train and i cannot find Clarification on if this qui- if this this old shitty kit were just was just used for that one song or other songs as well and and to your point why not just tighten up the head well this is where it all starts to seem a little bit like they're plotting against the guy almost uh, the producer loved the sound of the loose head and did not allow sterling or anybody to tighten it, it was just crazy I, so I, i'll echo my question was this some collusion was this some some set up thing to fuck grant over or just a bunch of things snowballing and spiraling i don't know it, it's right, hard it's hard right, to say right
1: but then but then so uh, <laughs> This is so you So then, the pro- if the producer still made Sterling do it, that it's just a shitty producer thing, that it wasn't a setup. You know, it was just this producer not knowing how a drum to- should be tuned.
2: I maybe, and I mean, again, me asking if it's a setup is sort of a rhetorical question. <laughs> I don't actually expect no, no, a totally, real yeah. answer to it. But I mean, you know, we could. Hone in on this conversation And turn the entire show into this conversation What was going on with this One kit and what was going on With their producer being obsessed Over its use I don't know The fact is uh, He was having trouble playing on it Sterling Campbell made it work Either way It is a very weird situation And for some reason Murphy and Perner are absolutely baffled that there's still tension to this day over the whole thing and that it's awkward when they happen to cross paths with Grant Young, Uh, which I think is just funny that they're all like, hmm, you know, the guy seems kind of bitter. Hmm, How weird. I think that's weird. But we do have some information from Grant Young. A 1995 Request magazine expose of sorts, something I was able to find a PDF of, which was pretty exciting, Uh, this expose of sorts covered this issue in surprising detail. In this piece, Perner says, quote, Well, of course, he's rightfully pissed off. He should be mad because we fucking bailed out on him. We didn't have faith in him, the faith that we should have had, and we really took an easy way out. (laughs) We just got another guy. It's lame, and I understand any kind of shot anybody wants to give me about it. I have no idea why. Rhythmically, I... I identify with Sterling Campbell more than I do with Grant Young, but hey, uh, am I talking too much? (laughs) End quote.
1: Yes. (laughs) Yes, you are. (laughs) Right? This guy's character, he just gets worse and worse and worse. You're really taking me on a trip with this Perner boy, man.
2: Dude, it's rough. And I gotta say, speaking about Perner being rough, if anybody thinks that Jerry and I were getting a little rough with each other when it comes to the Nirvana talk... If you wanna see two dudes who work together that seem like they absolutely fucking hate each other, watch old interviews between Dave Perner and Dan Murphy. They do not seem like they like each other. They seem like they like each other the way brothers who hate each other (laughs) like each other. It's a very tense and weird relationship, which doesn't make me dislike Murphy anymore. frankly makes me dislike Perner the more and more I see him in interviews. But anyway, that, that shocking clarity and honesty and sincerity that Dave Perner gave Request Magazine in 1995 is a far cry from the tone that he and Murphy would strike in 2013, which is a little more akin to, yeah, he just couldn't cut it anymore. He was really letting us down. But yeah, we fucked him over with a kick drum that even his replacement plainly said was fucked from the jump and unplayable. Yeah, it's awkward when we see the guy. <laughs> not sure why. Okay, that was not a direct quote.
1: <laughs> Real disconnected from reality. Yeah.
2: Yeah. No, you're right. They they absolutely do seem disconnected from reality, specifically when it comes to firing members. It's insane. <laughs> so yeah, as as we touched on a little bit ago, Campbell was credited as merely being a percussionist on the album. Something they did in an effort to save face and seem more authentic, lest the audience and critics find out that a rock band had a non-member session musician play on tracks. And hey, Campbell was amazing. (laughs) I mean, actually, he was a well-respected drummer who had toured with both Duran Duran and David Bowie. And now he was in Soul Asylum. All right. (laughs)
1: Sounds like that relationship might not last too long.
2: <laughs> Sounds like it, right? And so, after extensive touring for Grave Dancers Union, longtime drummer Grant Young was officially replaced by world-class hired gun Sterling Campbell. And Young wasn't the only old toy traded out for a new shinier one. Also in 1993, Dave Perner dumped his girlfriend of 13 years to shack up with... Winona Ryder Now, I want to be wow. clear <laughs> I mean, I might have done the same thing I don't know But <laughs> well, this show is about Dave Perner, not me <laughs> But I do, want to, th- I do <laughs> want to say this really quickly Ryder would face some brutal scrutiny in the press For being a homewrecker But, let's be real The press has a long tradition of misogyny And Dave Perner was a nobody who became a somebody and traded out his longtime love for a famous and beautiful Hollywood star. Parter didn't have to do that. So I say let's let's take some blame. Let's take all the blame off of Winona Ryder, shall we?
1: Seriously, the guy's a douche, y'all didn't pick up on that already? Like <laughs>
2: he's yeah. such a schmuck. Exactly. <laughs> Perner's move is an old story, man. It's it's cliché. It's as cliché as his lyrics would become on subsequent albums. And
1: those cliché moves really become, to turn to define, like, cliché Perner. It's, <laughs> just, it's just his style.
2: Yes, they do. Indeed, 1993 was the year that changed everything. And yes, I am making a big point of this. Grant Young is a beloved member of the band who doesn't get a fair shake from the band itself or third-party storytellers. Grant Young, we see you. You're a sick fucking drummer, man. Hell
1: yeah, shitty kit or not, my dude. (laughs)
2: 1994 was another year of touring and, of course, preparing for their follow-up to 1992's Grave Dancers Union. And if 1993 was the year that changed everything, well, uh... Show was 1995. <laughs> the year was
1: 1995. Everything was about to change for the band. <laughs>
2: <laughs> Again. You got a good old timey voice, dude.
1: <laughs> Thanks, man.
2: <laughs> June 6th, 1995's Let Your Dim Light Shine was a departure nobody wanted. While the band was absolutely criticized by hipsters for Grave Dancers Union, it was still a logical progression for the band. And though life is linear, bands, especially the great ones, rarely follow a straight-line path. Soul Asylum did. And while Perner claims he didn't want Runaway Train to define him, it seems to rule him.
1: And we're here to reinforce that even more.
2: (laughs) The soft, emotional, purpose-driven, heartland-styled, country folk rock energy of Runaway Train would become the defining sound of Soul Asylum from here on out. Indeed, that runaway train would stay the course on a single-minded track. Some might even say it was going the wrong way on a one-way track. Oh, see what I did there?
1: Oh, man. You're really bringing it together here. (laughs) (laughs)
2: <laughs> oh, a May 6, 1995 issue of Billboard Newspaper features Columbia Records product manager Nick Coochie spitting a whole lot of hot bullshit. Cucci tells Billboard, quote, We're taking a different approach, a bigger approach this time. We're still going after the core alternative fan base because we never want them to feel like they've been left out. But there isn't going to be a setup track this time around like with somebody to shove. All lies. First track and lead single, Misery, is absolutely a setup track. It sounds like the band that wrote Black Gold, and it sounds like the band that wrote Runaway Train, but heavier. The second track, Shut Down, follows that path, and then all of a sudden, we are dropped straight into heartland, Tom Petty fetishizing country rock. If there were more variation on the album... It'd be more tolerable. Well, and also with hindsight, we can see that this wasn't an artistic exercise as much as it was just chasing the runaway train dragon.
1: Well, you know, I think the lack of variation is the no setup track shtick though, you know? <laughs> garbage garbage from the start. Uh, another another main a major through line we'll see with these bands is like chasing that one hit song so so blatantly. You know, oh, sometimes man. in the follow-up record, but sometimes for the entirety of the rest of their careers.
2: I actually lo- really, really, really fuck with the track "Misery," but this this episode is not about that song, so I'm not I'm not gonna push back on any of that. <laughs> 1995's "Let Your Dim Light Shine" was the album that South by Southwest attendees were nonplussed by at best and miffed by at absolute worst. It wasn't some in-utero-style breakthrough follow-up that reimagined their harder roots with updated songcraft in a provocative effort to sift out the posers from the true believers and reward those still along for the ride. It also wasn't a full-on pop transformation sellout. Rather, Let Your Dim Light Shine was a dull, quaint, and inoffensive release that failed to excite folks, in any definition of the word. Chasing that dragon. Mm Mm-hmm. And much like the animal or the child who finally gets what they want and now has no idea what to do with it, Soul Asylum had finally achieved stardom and had no idea what to do with it. But one thing did continue in traditional fashion with the band. They were still bizarrely prone to making prescient statements that in hindsight proved to be unbelievable foreshadowing. In Neil Strauss' June 29, 1995 Rolling Stone piece, we were given some shocking clarity. Quote, My aspiration is to stand alone, Perner says in an extremely lucid moment, to put myself on a pedestal and to hate myself for standing on a pedestal. Pedestal. Well, (laughs) by 2012, he'd have his wish. But before we get there...
1: This is exactly what I've been saying, so he's finally
2: realizing it. (laughs) 1996 and 1997 saw the band continue their unending touring. And in 1997, Soul Asylum played one of their most talked about shows, The Red River Flood of 1997. Throughout April and May of that year, a flood of seemingly biblical proportions ravaged the surrounding areas of the Red River Valley, Fargo, and Winnipeg, while doing the most damage to Grand Forks and East Grand Forks. The flood caused an estimated $3.5 billion, in prop- dollars, $3.5 billion folks, in property damage. There luckily were zero reported deaths. But in addition to robbing folks of their belongings and homes, it also threatened to ruin prom for local high schoolers. Well, <laughs> Soul Asylum wasn't going to let that happen. So on June 28, 1997, in a hangar at the Grand Forks Air Force Base, Soul Asylum performed for the interschool prom for Grand Forks high school students. That performance would later be released in 2004 as a live album titled After the Flood, live from the Grand Forks Prom, June 28th, 1997.
1: Oh man, if we ever write and release a record together, Andy, we should totally call it (laughs) After the Flood, live from the Grand Forks Prom, June 28th, and then whatever year it is.
2: (laughs) Yeah, I'm sure that's That's going to go over excellently, man. (laughs)
1: Yeah, some future future clever punk, you know? Some
2: future clever punk, exactly. The band followed that with their eighth studio album, Candy from a Stranger, which was released on May 12, 1998, just about a month and a half after Semisonic's Feeling Strangely Fine. How about that? The album did not do well with critics or with fans. Further complicating things was, you guessed it, drummer issues (laughs) you see you hire a hired gun no matter how well things go they're gonna eventually go do their own thing especially when they see your thing not going well
1: oh man these guys cannot get it together
2: nope and so their drummer of 10 years was replaced by a drummer who would be with the band for four years at most and leave of his own volition. Bye. That's right. Sterling Campbell was then replaced by Ian Mussington, who would be with the band uh, from about 1998 to 2001, but back to 98.
1: We really need a sound effect for when we go back in time. <laughs> just like, <a laughs> I was
2: just, yeah. What is the uh, the Wayne's world? do do like, yeah, yeah,
1: exactly.
2: Uh, Well, on August 23rd, Uh, 1998, the Chicago Tribune published an article titled, Matchbox 20 Seeks Distance from Soul Asylum.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Oh my god. Yeah, what a
2: headline, right? Now...
1: Yeah, that got me. All right,
2: remember when uh, we said that Soul Asylum keyboardist Joey Huffman would leave the band for Matchbox 20? And that Soul yeah. Asylum would eventually find themselves going from soft grunge headliners to being sandwiched between soft pop rock bands Semisonics and Matchbox 20?
1: Mm, yeah, how could I forget?
2: Yeah, well, here we are. The embarrassing article begins with some unfortunate onstage banter from Perner. Quote, you'll have to forgive me. I'm having a bad day.
1: <laughs> Talks too much. Christ.
2: Yeah, and about talking too much. He would go on to directly ask the audience, quote, do you ever feel like no one cares about you anymore? Christ. I mean, I think there's just some questions you just don't ask, you know?
1: Oh, yeah. What a sad dude.
2: Well, following Candy from a Stranger, Soul Asylum was dropped by Columbia Records. This was another hiatus period for the band, though they would continue to play shows in various formations, but mostly as Dave Perner solo shows.
1: Just the way he always wanted it.
2: Seems like it, doesn't it? And speaking of solo shows, by 2002, Perner released his solo debut album titled Face... Christ. Faces and names. Also, during this time, guitarist Dan Murphy would pursue his heartland Tom Petty fetish even further with his alt-country supergroup, Golden Smog. By 2004, Soul Asylum was was ready to record a new album. They brought on drummer Michael Bland, who is perhaps most known for his time with prince and the new generation the new power generation rather
1: another hired gun an incredibly talented one but still another hired gun yeah
2: an unfortunate trend that would continue for this band oh and as i perhaps just intimated right there this would be a grim turning point for the band during work for their new album founding member and bassist carl Mueller was diagnosed with throat cancer. While Mueller was able to complete most of the album, deeply inspiring his bandmates in the process, producer John Fields and former replacements and Guns N' Roses bassist Tommy Stinson had to help fill in on bass.
1: No way, but even he could have saved the record, huh?
2: (laughs) No, no, he could not. On October 21st, 2004, a benefit was held at the Quest in Minneapolis, Minnesota. The show not only featured Paul Westerberg of the replacements, but also a 16-year-in-the-making reunion of Bob Mould and Grant Hart.
1: Not Grant Young.
2: Waka-waka-waka! Reuniting as <laughs> Husker Do. Soul Asylum also played the show featuring none other than Carl Mueller on bass. His cancer was in remission, and he was feeling better. And at least $50,000 was raised by the event.
1: Wow, that, that's awesome. And, I mean, strange and fucked up, but that's, that's also mostly
2: awesome. Well, and speaking of fucked up, man, the cancer did, however, return. And on June seventeenth, two 2005, Carl Mueller died at his home, surrounded by family. As stated earlier, any remaining bass lines on the In the Works album were played by John Fields and Tommy Stinson.
1: Damn, that is so sad, but I mean, you know, not the worst couple of dudes to take over your gig.
2: No, definitely not, definitely not, especially with Tommy Stinson, and that's kind of like, whoa, man, I mean, that that should have been like a supergroup sort of situation, Soul Asylum gets The Replacements bassist, Tommy fucking Stinson? Oh, yeah. The Silver Lining is the band's ninth LP, and it was released July 11th, 2006, and it's you know, uh, an album, <laughs> key single, "Crazy Mixed Up World," and that is an unironic title, by the way, folks. A hundred percent unironic, is a great example of what this album has to offer. It's the Dave Perner band as Soul Asylum pushing forth into the depths of Hallmark Channel white bread mundanity. "Crazy Mixed Up World" is the sound of a framed live, laugh, love cross-stitch just, just coming through your speakers. During this time, session musician George Scott McKelvey would also support the band on bass, filling in during their 2006-2007 Silver Lining tour while Tommy Stinson was uh, playing bass with Guns N' Roses.
1: <laughs> wow, yeah, good, good other project.
2: Yeah, I'd I'd, I'd probably have chosen that one, too. (laughs) Anyway, before moving on to the end of this here story, I would like to quote Dan Murphy from that Neil Strauss Rolling Stone piece. Murphy said, Carl is the band's grounding. Without him, we would never have been together for so long. Very Very fitting tribute for Carl Mueller. While I still do have questions about why Pat Morley left or was fired, Grant Young's firing and Carl Mueller's death were undeniably blows that forever changed the band. And as the band continued to change, (laughs) so did their label situation. In 2012, Soul Asylum was signed to the uh, (coughs) indie label 429 Records a true independent, as it is not connected to Warner Universal or Sony. <laughs> and through 429 yes. Records, Soul Asylum released their 10th studio album, Delayed Reaction, on July 7th, 2012.
1: And that premiered at number 160 on the Billboard charts. Like, I'm so surprised that they're even anywhere on the map for anyone at this point.
2: Yeah. 2012. 160, god
1: Jesus. Like, I mean, it's not amazing, but, like, it's it's still there. Like,
2: holy moly. I know. Uh, it's not amazing, but it is impressive. Because to your point, who was listening to Soul Asylum in 2012, let alone their new shit? Like, what? <laughs> like, who are you? Right. Yeah. Mm. <laughs> yeah. No, like, honestly, uh, uh, at Bad Band Great Song on uh, Facebook and Instagram, at BBGS Show on Twitter... I- who are you? I want to know. <laughs> like, come find us, please. <laughs> oh man. Yeah, send
1: us photos of your copies of the record, please.
2: Yeah, we need the proof. Send us photos of you holding the record. Anyway, by by October 9th, 2012, finding, founding and defining member uh, we, we were we were hinting at this, folks. Founding and defining member and lead guitarist Dan Murphy called it quits. In an exit letter that would make a PR person weep tears of joy while giving a standing ovation, Murphy politely bowed out of Soul Asylum with gracious and politic poise. He thanked everyone there was to thank, except, <laughs> you know, Grant Young. Something that fans in forums took note of and were not very happy about. Man,
1: what a loser.
2: Yeah, I'm not very cool if you ask me. Oh, and of course, cool. Tommy Stinson would soon be out as well. He was replaced by a man whose first name is oddly phonetically similar to Tommy's last name. I'm talking about new and current solo solo bassist, Winston Roy. Tommy Stinson, Winston Roy. See see what I'm saying there? Well, yeah. Well, anyway. <laughs> then, guitarist Justin Charbono came in and replaced Dan Murphy. Michael Bland was and still is the drummer for the Dave Perner Band. Uh, Ah, gosh, Uh. I mean Soul (laughs) Asylum. (laughs) 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 Uh, uh, uh. This brings us to March 18th, 2016, and the release of the band's 11th album titled Change of Fortune, a nice title that was in no way prophetic, as their fortune would not in any way, shape, or form change. Change of Fortune... As many things are these days, came to fruition thanks to a crowdfunding campaign, as detailed by Perner in an August 28th, 2016 interview with Dayton Daily News.
1: Who are these people funding this shit still? Like, what's happening? I,
2: I, dude, I don't even know. Again, at Babang Song on Instagram and Facebook, at BBS Show on Twitter. Who are you? Who are you? Let us know. Change of Fortune was released by E1 Music, a.k.a. Entertainment One Music, which is, uh, sort of indie? Its parent company is Entertainment One, a Canadian entertainment company that functions as the content production and distribution subsidiary of American toy company Hasbro. Hmm,
1: man. Indie does not feel so indie sometimes.
2: Yeah, it's weird, isn't it? It's like like it's technically an indie, but it's also quite directly owned by Hasbro. Not. Like what? Right. Very weird. Very very weird. Well, shortly after the release of Change of Fortune, guitarist Justin Charbonneau left the band. And he was replaced by Ryan Smith, who is still with the group and functions as Perner's new right-hand man, thus solidifying the lineup of Soul Asylum. I mean the Dave Perner Band. And the Dave Perner Band consists of Dave Perner on guitar and vocals, Ryan Smith on lead guitar, Winston Roy on bass, and Michael Bland on drums. And on April 17th, 2020, the Dave Perner Band acting as an old band called Soul Asylum, released their most recent and 12th studio album, Hurry Up and Wait. What a fun title that is. And with that, Dave Perner's prescience paid off. As he said in 1995, quote, my aspiration is to stand alone, to put myself on a pedestal, and to hate myself for standing on a pedestal. And 40 years after Soul Asylum start. He is the only original member. You stand alone, Dave.
1: Man, what a dick. He, he, he really he really took the long way around this. He, he could have just been doing this so long ago.
2: Yeah, I feel like there was an easier and quicker way to get where he's gotten, but, well, here we are discussing it, and yeah.
1: What a path.
2: What, dude, I couldn't have said it better myself. I fucking agree, man. <laughs> And let's talk about how this, uh, this, uh, this fella created the song, shall we? Runaway Train was written by Dave Perner. It was produced by Michael Beinhorn. In Spin Magazine's Wrong Way on a One-Way Track, the oral history of, of Asylum's Runaway Train, Perner says he had the melody and chords for years prior to its recording, but had no idea what to do with it conceptually. Inspiration struck when Perner was at a particularly hard point in his life, suffering from depression. As he tells Spin Magazine, he had, quote, somebody that I could call up in the middle of the night. And so the lyric came to him, and he says it just flowed forth from there. It only, you know, took about four years to get to that moment, according to him.
1: Yeah, what the moment of finally writing a decent song? <laughs> That—that's the moment he's referring to.
2: <laughs> hey, you know the creative process uh, is quite a process, isn't it? Yeah.
1: Well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I, I can't. I can't argue. I'm just being a dick. Here.
2: <laughs> and that's what we do here on the show, folks. And let's talk about the critical reaction, commercial impact, chart success, and fan response. Critical reaction. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> reviews for Grave Dancers Union and Runaway Train were largely positive. Of course, there were reviews that took swipes at it, but generally speaking, the king making was in full force as critics united around celebrating this release. It was praised for its repurposing of traditional rock, as many bands of the grunge era were lauded for. Critics loved how they were softer than many of their contemporaries but also harder than true folk rock bands.
1: Critics love that middle of the road shit, you know, like besides the money behind the scenes in the whole critic world, <laughs> they just really really try to pander to the general public.
2: Yeah, I don't I don't know when the last time I actually believed a critic was and on that note, thanks for paying attention to the show, folks. We're glad you've been glad you've been with us this whole time. So uh, let's get into some critique. Calling "Grave Dancers Union" a critical darling is an overstatement, but it was by no means trashed by critics. "Runaway Train" was an almost unanimously loved song.
1: He- here I am, Andy. Uh, not unanimously. <laughs> song sucks. <laughs> <laughs>
2: <laughs> Thank you Jerry. We need we need the outliers like you in this world. Oh man, commercial impact. Grave Dancers Union was certified triple platinum and peaked at number 11 on the Billboard 200 thanks in very large part to the band's biggest song, Runaway Train. Chart success. Well, oh man, really quickly, this song charted way too much around the world. We can't go over all of it, so so please note The following is all U.S. Billboard charts. So, Runaway Train peaked at number one on the Hot 100 Recurrence chart, which is a very weird chart that makes less sense the more you read about it. But basically, Billboard has a set of flimsy criteria and rules they change as needed to keep charts fresh and not cluttered, but still have a chart for, quote, recurrent songs that need to be separated. Christmas songs. Christmas songs are a really great example of this. Like Mariah Carey's 1994 recording, All I Want for Christmas is You, hitting number one in December 2019. That hit number one on the recurrent charts. The song also reached number two on the Mainstream Top 40 Airplay chart, number three on the Mainstream Rock Airplay chart, number five on the Hot 100 as well as the Bubbling Under Hot 100 chart, number nine on the Radio Songs chart, number 12 on the Alternative Digital Song Sales chart, number 13 on the Alternative Airplay chart, I fucking hate Billboard charts, number 15 on the Adult Contemporary chart, and number 22 on the Rock Digital song sales chart.
1: Chart. Ah!
2: None of those chart names are remotely, like, just... They're the most clinical and strange and not easy at all to say chart names. I fucking...
1: Yeah, they're barely chart-worthy.
2: They're, Fan response This is a funny one There were absolutely hipsters who said this was proof of them selling out Still, there were also hardcore fans who absolutely loved this song And as we just went over In detail uh, There were many, 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 many millions of people more millions people than their small, small hardcore fan base who absolutely loved this song. This song made the band megastars. It made Dave Berner a teen idol in Germany, gracing the covers of their various versions of Tiger Beat-style magazines.
1: See, that that makes more sense to me. International success makes so much more sense to me for this band. <laughs>
2: I kind of wonder how you came to that rationalization, but I'm hey, I'm I'm not gonna disagree with you. So let's uh let's slip into segment three, shall we? And let's uh let's uh bring this horse home. Is that that's not that's not I don't is that an expression that I don't I don't think that that's not an expression, is it? I don't think that's an expression.
1: That's, that's not an expression, but maybe if we say it enough, it'll become one. So, yes, let's bring this horse home, Fanny.
2: And let's bring this horse home. Segment three, what makes the band bad? All right. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to keep this pretty simple. Soul Asylum was not, was not a bad band. They became one. In fact, I'll say, for their first eight to nine records, they were a fucking amazing band. And yes, I'm, I'm counting cassette-only release, Time's Incinerator, and I'm also counting the EP, Clam Dip, and Other Delights. Well, I, and I'm including kind of head or miss, Let Your Dim Light Shine. Soul Asylum became a truly terrible band with 1998's Candy from a Stranger. So the thesis here is, Soul Asylum is not, a bad band for what they were, but for what they became. Now, if a cursory listen might leave you thinking Early Soul Asylum was really just replacements light, well, you need to fucking listen harder. (laughs) Early Soul Asylum is passionate and intricate music. Yeah, I didn't expect you to agree with that one, but again, I don't know if you really like emotional music, Jeremy, but maybe that's a conversation for another time. And, yeah, that uh, intricate music. I'm going to stand by that. The songs had many different textures and shifting dynamics underneath all that grit, grime, crunch, and clangor. Their arrangements were very purposeful. Yes, intricate, and and also truly bespoke.
1: Uh, I think that takes it a little far.
2: (laughs) Okay. All right. I appreciate that rebuttal, Jeremy. (laughs) But, but, I'm going to stick to my statement. Their arrangements before Runaway Train were were very intricate. But after Runaway Train, by 1998, for sure, Candy from a Stranger, that was all gone. Those intricate arrangements. The band's songs became conventional to a fault. The songs became one-dimensional, just country, folk rock, open-chord strumming, verse, chorus, verse, chorus, solo, chorus type of songs. A song like Runaway Train was a nice diversion at the time. A song like Promises Broken was a beautiful, nice moment, sure, but then their entire body of work just became that. Perner's lyrics were once loopy and trippy, but always very personal and, and almost unsettlingly honest.
1: Unsettling for sure. <laughs> <laughs> but by
2: 1998, by 1998 and on, his lyrics became lazy, overly simplistic, and, and rife with conventional and expected rhymes and defined by actual cliches.
1: Yep, agree with you there
2: (laughs) Thank you Outside of diehard fans who love everything the Dave Perner Band does The most positive consensus you can find on Latter-day Soul Asylum albums is Something along the lines of Quote, pleasant and enjoyable nice songs And I... I don't know about you folks at home But there are so many bands and songs in the world I need more than Pleasant band songs they're like people to me and i (laughs) kind of have all the friends i need you know they're the best people i've i've met and i've found and, and they are my friends they are my friends because they're the best i'm of course open to meeting anyone and everyone but anyone and everyone won't just become a friend of mine again i have all the friends i need i will and, and in turn, I will listen to all the music in the world, but I'm not just looking to collect sounds and to zone out to. You know, if something is merely nice, that's not really good enough. Not for me, anyway. <laughs> I,
1: I, love, I love that analogy and couldn't agree more with the sentiment, except for th- saying that I already have enough friends. I, think, I don't think you could ever have enough, but... I knew we were going to go digging at some people in the music industry. They may get mad at us, but you managed to bring our friends into this. uh, I I appreciate that.
2: (laughs) Yeah, man, I'm just trying to see how many people I can piss off. (laughs) But no, but I mean, I meant that. Listen, I'm not out there just trying to collect people. I have all the friends I need. If I make more, great, but I'm not looking for it. And that's the same way I, I approach music, honestly, dude. Like... If I hear music that's fucking cool and it really resonates with me, awesome. But I'm not so starved for more music that I'm just going to tolerate things that are just okay, you know? My point is something has to... For sure. If you're going to become my new friend (laughs) or a new band or new song that I love, you really have to add something to my experience, you know? And that's, that's what I'm speaking to. Right, right, right. Well, anyway...
1: I get that, I get
2: that. Let's bring this horse home. (laughs) Runaway Runaway train changed Perner. And I'm not going to sit here and psychoanalyze him, but after 10 years of grinding, he got fame, and he wanted to keep it. He dumped his girlfriend of 13 years for a Hollywood star, he fired his drummer of 10 years for a touring session guy with an incredible resume, and he forsook the sound that defined his career... (laughs) in an effort to continually replicate the pleasant live-laugh-love energy of his biggest hit, not realizing that the grit was an essential element of that success. And speaking of success, let's now look at what makes Runaway Train so great.
1: I'm ready to look, but I don't know if you'll convince me on this one, dude. (laughs)
2: Let's see. Well, starting with our technical analysis. Runaway Train is a classic song. It is classic in structure, chord progression, vocal melody, lead guitar, bass, and drums. It is a traditional ballad in each and every way.
1: Yes, and?
2: (laughs) And folks who are calling it a, quote, power ballad are missing the mark, as it has none of the defining characteristics of a power ballad the song is in fact closer to Wayne Cochran's Last Kiss than something like Cinderella's Don't Know What You Got Till It's Gone or White Snake's Is This Love. In fact, the chord progression for One Runaway Train is, is nearly identical to Last Kiss, just slightly rearranged. And speaking of classic elements of traditional 50s and 60s era ballads, Dan Murphy's lead guitar is the stuff of fucking legends people really just don't play guitar like this anymore and i i don't mean that in some sort of you know old man yelling at clouds way just truly people don't so what separates this from uh how a lead guitarist in a typical band would play well let's uh let's uh, look into that uh
1: i mean i beg to differ but you know i mean yeah, I can't think of an example at the moment, so... Mm. Uh.
2: Strong argument. I love it. So let me rebut that argument with <laughs> with, with some amazing, uh, with some amazing uh, help here. So let's look at a band like Pixies and their song, Where Is My Mind. Frank Black is playing the chord progression while Joey Santiago plays that classic three-note lead part. This is a very, very right. extreme example. But most modern rock lead parts, not solos, but just lead parts played... Underneath the vocals, over the chords during a verse, most lead parts, going back to your one of your favorite bands, Jerry, The Strokes, uh, most lead guitar parts that like Nick Valenzi or uh, Albert Hammond Jr. would play, are much much closer to that three note figure that Joey Santiago plays in "Where Is My Mind." Rather, what Dan Murphy is playing is a lyrical an incredibly melodic lead guitar passage that is ornate, it is intricate, and it progresses throughout the song.
1: I.E. repetitive as
2: fuck. Except, no, literally the exact opposite. Literally, that's the exact opposite of what I'm saying. It progresses throughout the song. It is lyrical. It is melodic. It literally changes as the verse goes. So, no not repetitive as fuck buddy in fact the exact opposite and this is very classic 60s and 70s era lead guitar playing 50s era as well it's it's as if the guitar is singing its own melody one that complements the vocal line in the song ah yeah. <laughs> oh, i i just love the consensus we're coming upon here it's really it's really really good stuff here man lyrically this song tells a clear and coherent story, another element of classic ballads, uh, especially from a traditional poetic perspective. And while the lyrics don't follow a traditional rhyme scheme at all, and trust me on that, they do not, each verse is made up of two quatrains, and each chorus is a quatrain. A A quatrain is a simple... Uh, is simply, it's, it's just a poetic, lyrical stanza of four lines. Now, it can also be a complete poem in and of itself, but you know, typically quatrains are features of traditional classic ballads, and they make up the individual stanzas in the ballads. And this song absolutely employs that uh, in its own way. Well, and then we have this. The one and the only Booker T. Of Booker T and the MGs on the Hammond B3 organ.
1: Wait, whoa. Well, well, when did he get involved with the project? Is he on any other tracks? Like, well, what, how, what's that story?
2: So he's actually not on any other tracks. Uh, and he was brought in specifically due to David Kane, then uh, head of A&R at Columbia Records. He was apparently yeah. very pa- yeah, he was apparently very passionate about having to get Booker T on the track, which is pretty badass. Having Booker T on the track alone gives the song a timeless feel, but having him of all people playing the Hammond B3 organ just helps to put the song into that truly classic territory. At least somewhere sort of on the outskirts not far from truly classic territory. <laughs> he plays his part simply, and that simplicity is a mark of a master. He knows what not to do just as much as he knows what to do. The addition of Booker T and the B3 organ recalls the freewheeling classic rock sounds of mid-60s Dylan, and I think that's pretty cool. His part
1: for sure brings the whole song together.
2: Absolutely does. And talking about bringing things together, bringing things home, bringing this horse home, let's get into this personal analysis, shall we? Okay. Let's do it. So I was not 11 when this song came out. I was much much younger. But I was 11 when I learned to play it as my second song ever on guitar right after Semisonic's closing time. And no, folks, (laughs) this wasn't on purpose. This whole thing, episodes one and two, this was not on purpose, not a first, anyway.
1: Oh, my God. Wait. Okay. Play it. Play it. Play Runner Entry right now, Fanny. Do it. I want to hear it.
2: Nope. <laughs> Come on. Nope. And uh, So what strikes, uh, what strikes me about this song is that it's truly timeless, save for the vocals and the overall production. This, this could have been a recording from any era of guitar-based pop music. It's classic in construction and presentation. And this song, for me laid bare the rules of songwriting in a way that classics from the 50s and the 60s did. This song does everything perfect from a conventional standpoint, and it's absolutely wonderful. And Dan Murphy somehow wrote a solo that bridged the gap between 60s folk rock lead playing and some jangly 80s Cure-style lead part, Definitely, which definitely speaks to me. I was blown away by discovering what was essentially a folk rock tune That was actually a huge crossover pop hit. So, for me, this song proves that the fundamentals of songwriting are indeed a thing. I believe if a band wrote and released this song today, yeah, I believe it would be huge. Maybe not as huge as this was then, but I still think it'd be huge. If a band wrote their version, quote unquote, of this song, much like I kind of argue Runaway Train is, is their version of Last Kiss, I believe that would be a great song.
1: I get that, but this all kind of proves to me that the fundamentals of songwriting are able to be, like, so far-reaching and can, and can you know, bring great success and, like, you know, make it, make it something really accessible and that the populace can understand, and that's relatable. That's where the fundamental, fundamentals go, but I don't know if it creates a good song.
2: No, it doesn't necessarily create a good song. It can, however, create a great song, which I argue this song is. And I argue that this song is so great. (laughs) Dude, this song song is so great, it literally lifted, well, it figuratively, it didn't literally lift, it it, it It use the word literally right, folks. It figuratively lifted a band from 10 years of fucking obscurity and DIY non-stop grinding Two international pop stars That's a powerful song I mean, going from 10 years of utter obscurity To international pop rock stars Off the back of one song That's a powerful song I was stoked that this song was huge When I learned about it at age 11-ish And I'm still absolutely ecstatic That this song was as huge as it was
1: yeah, that's a great a great lesson. Work super super hard on your craft for years and years and years and then just give up it all <laughs> to the pop.
2: I mean that is kind of the that is kind of the way to do it, isn't it? <laughs>
1: oh man. I guess so, yeah.
2: Well, shucks. I'd say that this uh that uh now we actually got to bring this horse home. So, folks, if that's uh, <laughs> it, that's it, that's it. So it's time to bid you all a good night and farewell. So, folks, thank you very much for your time. I'd like to say to y'all, stay strange, be kind, and love yourselves.
1: Yeah. Also, sometimes it's okay to just break up a, as a band and just call it. Like, sometimes the <laughs> magic just leaves. <laughs> And if you want to be front and center, just do it. Like, don't drag it out. Come on. (sighs)
2: See you in hell, folks.
1: I love you.